Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned, independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at banyan.com. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Banyan Books Podcast. I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Today, I'm really excited that we are in conversation with Zenju Earthland Manuel. Osho Zenju Earthland Marceline Manuel is a poet, author, ordained Zen priest, and medicine woman of the drum who was born and raised in Los Angeles, California. As a child, she was referred to by the name her mother gave her, Earthland. Her middle name, Marceline, was her grandmother's name. Zenju is a Dharma name. Osho is a title meaning Zen teacher. She's the Dharma heir of Buddha and the late Zenkai Blanche Hartman in the Shunryu Suzuki Roshi lineage through the San Francisco Zen Center. Prior to entering Zen Buddhism, Zenju practiced in the Nishiren Soka Gakkai tradition for 15 years. She entered Zen in 2001 and began again as a beginner on the path. Zenju's practice is influenced by Native American and African indigenous traditions. She participated in ceremony with Ifa diviners from Dahomey, Africa, and briefly studied Yoruba. She was raised in the Church of Christ, where she was an avid reader of the Bible and adored the true mystic teachings on Christ's path well into adulthood. Her work has been featured in Essence, Buddha Dharma, Lion's Roar, On Being, CNN, CBS News, and more. She's the author of several books, including The Deepest Peace, The Way of Tenderness, and Tell Me Something About Buddhism. Today, Osho Zenju Earthland Manuel is with Banyan Books in conversation about her latest book. It's titled The Shamanic Bones of Zen, Revealing the Ancestral Spirit and Mystical Heart of a Sacred Tradition. This book explores the connections between contemporary Zen practice and shamanic or indigenous spirituality. Zenju builds a compelling case for discovering and cultivating the shamanic elements in Zen, many of which have been marginalized by colonialist and modernist forces in the religion. She also offers guidance for developing practices of ritual, such as preparing a sanctuary, engaging in chanting practices, and deepening embodiment within ceremony. Zenju sees Zen and all meditation practices as shamanic in nature. Zen is living in ritual and ceremony, 
And through those activities, especially Zazen, we come to see and know the chaotic and sublime nature of our lives. If you'd like to learn more about today's honored guest, you can visit her website, which is zenju, Z-E-N-J-U dot O-R-G. Banyan Books community, please join me in a warm welcome for this evening's guest. Welcome, Zenju Earthland. Thank you so much for being here. Okay, thank you. Thank you for inviting me, and um, I look forward to our conversation this evening. Me too. One of the things, that actually, in the afterword of the book, you wrote, I am constantly asked to give Dharma talks, as that has become the way. But talks, in the way they are usually structured, cannot engage the mind and body in the way ritual and ceremony can. And this theme, this theme of fully engaging our mind and body in everything that we do, runs through the whole book. So I'm wondering, do you have any pointers or what's the best way for us as, as listeners to, to fully engage in, in a Dharma talk? Okay, that's a very good question. Um, I do want to also acknowledge the uh, Tiwa in this uh, New Mexico land that I live on and um, all the Apache tribes and the 19 Pueblos and the many, many people that um, I think hold the sacred of this land. It's a very sacred land and that's why I chose it as a second home because I'm a native Californian. So, um, I think the teaching of, of being still breathing in and out and listening as a teacher is speaking um, has been um, dropped or sometimes not explained a lot. And so when in the Dharma uh, talks uh, in Zen, when I first started, you know, you're still in the posture of, that you take when you're uh, doing meditation and you usually have your eyes glancing down like you do. we do. We have ours slightly open glancing down at a point and just breathing in and breathing out and allowing the body to take in the message as opposed to the mind. And so it's really difficult, you know, people break out their notebooks and start writing and um, or they're thinking um, they're already, you know, have a question before you're done and these kinds of things. And so it makes it seem as though we're in school or there is a lecture and not saying anything's wrong with that, but it's a different way of experiencing the teachings. Um, one thing that I always uh, share with my students is that the teachings are like uh, new beloveds. You're developing a new relationship and so you need to listen. You wouldn't stop and take notes. You were born where? You know, <laughs> you're just kind of listening and watching and witnessing and hearing and, and getting to know the teachings, you know, through your lived experience. It can only be through your lived experience. So I, breathing is, is the main um, place. And I found that when I sit that way and listen to a talk, um, just breathing and taking it in, the words themselves are transformed into an applied experience of life on its own. Like I don't have to translate it. 
into my life. It just happens. If I'm if I'm breathing and um, listening, still in zazen, still in meditation, still in that place. So often we'll sit, we'll say we're going to have a meditation, and then everyone sits and they're very quiet. The, the bell rings and everyone goes boom. They jump out of the of the container that has been um, set for them to receive the teachings, rather than staying in that place of breathing so that you can um, take it in through, through the body and not the mind, not as knowledge, because it's the wisdom that you're opening up to. And it's the, the meditation is helping you to um, make room in all of your thoughts and you know your big life, <laughs> make room in your big life to allow something else to come in and, and rock your world if you want. And maybe not, maybe it'll be so small, you might miss it, maybe so small. So um, yeah, breathing, being still, staying in, in the posture that is best for you in, in which to receive uh, medicine, yeah. but you can rest with it. Thank you. You know, we we acknowledge the the first peoples of the land that were on here and the ancestors as you did where, where you are there in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And you you touch on that in the book is the power of of invoking or calling in the ancestors in our practice. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you can sort of illuminate that that area for for us. Mm -hmm. How how is that done? Uh, what is the power in, in invoking the ancestors? Yeah, I think. Um... Various traditions have their ways of invoking ancestors. And um, the ancestors are anything or anyone that was before us. So a lot of people, you know, they're like, well, I don't really know if I want to look back into that lineage. Uh, it doesn't feel good, you know. So it could be your bloodline. It could be the earth, the moon, and the sun. All of that was here before we arrived. All the medicine was here. The trees were here. We didn't have to go, okay, now we're going to go find, have to find water. You know, our, our guardians provided it, helped us and directed us to the water, to, to the medicine and these things, but uh, they were here and they are ancestors. And for me, it's most important because even my presence here right now, my very presence is because of all that was before me, you know, my speaking is all teachings that were before me. What I speak has uh, been said before, and everyone knows that, I think. You, we hear things over and over. So to acknowledge uh, the lineage of wisdom is important and uh, to me, and I think important in our practices so that we're not only um, trying to get something for ourselves, just for ourselves, and seeing only our life, but seeing, um, like, I love the way uh, the Thich Nhat Hanh community uses the word continuation, that we're, uh, we're continuations, and to understand our lives as that, and um, <clears throat> to not claim it and own it as uh, my teaching, our teachings. You know, um, the book, yeah, I might have done the work, but it's um, a combination of all that has been transmitted um, from ancestors to now. And uh, so I think it's important. Um, a student came to me once and said, 
I don't understand this ancestor stuff, <laughs> you know? And this student was, I think, was in training to be a teacher, a Dharma teacher. And um, I said, well, you know, and we were in a Buddhist center and I said, well, the Buddha that we speak of, Shakyamuni Buddha and the Buddhas before him, or our, our ancestors to the teachings you're being trained to teach in. And if you're not understanding that, then when you go out to teach, it's gonna be based on, on your ego, as opposed to being um, acknowledging and, and, and humbly, humbly doing that, that the teachings are coming, wisdom from the earth, which is the big ancestor, and then a lineage of wisdom so that you're, you're teaching, you might talk about your life, but it's the teaching itself is not based, uh, what you're sharing is not based only on what you think people should do or how they should be and, you know, your idea of it, but rather, um, you know, coming from a wisdom that has been long existed before, you know, we were a notion. And um, so I think it's very important um, to, you know, I want to acknowledge right here too that you lit candles behind you before you came and I, I lit mine too. And I think that that is just right there, a, um, an act in, a, in bringing in the ancestors. It doesn't have to be long and involved, it's very simple, you know, and um, you decide what that is you know, a placing of, of a petal of a rose uh, down on earth or down on an altar to say, I, I am receiving and sharing. I'm a continuation. I am the seed. I am from the seed rather. And um, so, you know, just small gestures. Um, so it's not to say, okay, tell me what I should know. Again, not going back to that knowledge place but acknowledging um, the source, the source of life. Yeah. Thank you. And it, it brings me back to this idea that runs through your book and it's a beautifully written, very poetic book I found. And um, this idea of bringing our whole being, and I'm just wondering what happens when we, you know, like you, you point to the fact that as, as practitioners, we can, particularly in your tradition, the Zen tradition, it can become habitual. We can, we can start doing the ceremonies or rituals by rote. So if we're calling in the ancestors or doing a ritual, what is the experiential difference as a pra practitioner when we actually bring our fullness to it? Mm -hmm. Again, I think it, it takes time because you're developing a relationship with the bell or drum or a chant. You're developing the relationship with it. And then when that relationship feels whole and more complete, it's just like in our other relationships, sometimes we go, okay, I know who you are. And uh, we go on about our business and we forget to continue to hear that voice of the person at like in the first time we heard that voice or see that person with our eyes in the way that we saw them, you know, and not necessarily have to be romantic, but just what we, what we felt. And so, um, and this is why I love uh, ceremony and bell ringing and chanting, because I think it brings you back to 
to the beginning and brings you back to Suzuki, Suzuki Roshi's favorite, you know, to beginner's mind, rather than being an expert on the relationship with the teachers or uh, teachings or expert in relationship to the chanting or, oh yes, I know all the ancestors and you just run through and you're half asleep, you're falling asleep and, and this kind of thing. And so um, some of that requires preparation. So you, you can't be exhausted exhaustion is very difficult uh when in, when you're in uh, makes ceremony difficult if you're exhausted and so i you know i invite people to just rest and go to sleep before ceremony in the back of the book i have a long <laughs> protocol about entering retreats you know preparing so what people do is they work you know 90 hours and then they join the retreat saturday morning and fall asleep you know, are they fighting sleep and hunger and everything else because they think they're coming to rest at the retreat, but you rest before, you rest before so that you're able to engage the teachings, you're able to engage the chanting in a different way that's not so routine. What I like about Zen is you can never know it all. There's just never, it's, it's just never ending never ending and we still in this country don't have a full transmission of all the ceremonies but it's never ending and um, even in my long 20 years uh there are um still things to learn you know for me you know in terms of ceremony and ritual and i i love it and it uh every time i learn a new one you know at first i'm like oh no what am what am i supposed to do and that's the first thing. But then I just settle in and I close my eyes and I listen and everyone's trying to memorize the steps, but I'm not. I'm, I'm trying to get the dance. How are we going to dance here together? And that helps me, you know, um, move through, uh, especially if I'm leading it, move through uh, the ritual and the ceremony. So again, the, the basis for... Um, my own way of engaging my body is from zazen, you know, it's from meditation so that that's always, um, you know, my way of being, not just what I do at eight, six o'clock in the morning, six o'clock at night or something. It's my way of being. It has become that over time. So I think other traditions have other, it may, they may not have zazen, but they have some kind of a foundation to the ritual and ceremony. And when you're able to tap into that, whatever that is, just with the breath, you're, you'll be open enough to, um, to engage and to um, let go of, of, of the, the habit, you know? And, and like I said, there are ways that in Zen, you, you know, you, maybe you're sitting in the background chanting, chanting, chanting. And then one time it's your turn to lead the chant. And you're like, oh no, you've been there five years listening to this thing, you know, <laughs> saying chant. And you're like, oh no, I have to lead it. What, what goes on here? Suddenly no one knows anything. <laughs> and I, I think that's beautiful. Like that whole shock of like, oh, I don't know. And I've been here five years. And <laughs> I think that's I'm like, oh, this is gonna be great. And there's always that place with the forms and the rituals that, okay, I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. And um, in all the ceremonies I've been in, Native and African, there's always that place 
where um, there's an unknown. There's never a, a ritual or a ceremony that is known. And, to, and so to stay awake, to stay awake to that place that's gonna open up, you know? So when it's time, you, you take a leap, even though you don't know what's gonna happen when you take that leap. Thank hope you. that makes sense. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Now, the shamanic roots, the shamanic bones of Zen, um, you, you talk about what's been lost possibly, and you, you just mentioned that there's so many rituals and ceremonies that maybe haven't even made it to America yet from, from the Asian countries and cultures. Can you, can you help us understand where those shamanic roots originate in the Zen? Like you, you point to the fact that, that Shakyamuni Buddha himself had was shamanic by nature, but what, what else was picked up in the Zen tradition as it moved from India through the Himalayas into China into Japan, and then eventually to America? Right. So first I want to say that I do talk about the word shamanic, you know, and the use of it, that is problematic. So for all you in the audience who are saying, well, there's a problem I know. And it's, and, and I tried to address that in the book. I just use this word as a way of expressing an experience of awakening in this book. Um, but in other places and the word, you know, comes from a particular culture and, um, and has been used in so many ways that may not have been right. I'm, I'm aware. I just want you to know that I'm aware of that. And, um, of course, maybe there could be some other, um, words that, uh, could be used. It could be just the bones because all bones are shamanic, just bones, just roots. It could be just that those words used. So, um, I, I'm already aware that all the most paths, uh, spirituality, religion, um, any kind of uh, philosophy or uh, spiritual philosophies come from uh, the root, come from the earth, come from um, something very old and very ancient. And so while this is not a book of, of uh, an academic scholarly book, on that lineage, you know, from there to here. There are many, many books though, that are wonderful, that are out there, but they're in the academia. And so we don't have access to them as easily. So what I have written is not so new to a lot of people like, oh yeah, I know that already, but um, it's not talked about in application of, of practice. It's talked about as an academic subject. There's some wonderful books, and one of the ones I like a lot is um, Sam uh, Van Shag's book, uh, Buddhist Magic, uh, Healing and Divination. It's a great book, and it's, it's a great study. So anyway, um, and he also has a book called Tibetan Zen. That's a great study, too, that there was a Zen in Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, so um, a more shamanic style. So always the people are living on the earth, right? From the beginning. That's why we're acknowledging the earth that we live on, the people who were here. And um, so everywhere there's people that were just there who had created their own cosmology, spiritual cosmology. And so that is in every, uh, uh, where? Every continent, every country, every 
you can name it, it was there. And so for, for Zen, you know, you know, we can go into looking at Shinto, Shingong, and, and Taoism, and on and on. Um, even um, pieces of, uh, pieces, maybe a whole lot, I don't want to diminish um, the Vedanta studies, the Vedic studies, which I looked at a lot and love to read. Um, and to, and they're, they're just, you can tell the Buddhism that came out of it, came out of there. And so um, Buddhism uh, kind of grew in with, to me, the interest from the interests of the emperors and uh, the kingdoms and um, got mixed up with, uh, you know, the warring and summarize and all these kinds of things. And um, uh, what's this? Um, Dogen. <laughs> Dogen uh, is temple. Dogen Zenji, um, his first, I, I believe, his first Sangha were samurais coming in to learn how to be more um, concentrated so they could go out and fight. So imagine that, <laughs> coming to sit Zazen so you can fight better and so <laughs> be better warriors. So they had to um, remove their armor, you know, before they came in to sit. And in that removing of the armor, of course, less and less of fighting um, was the attention to fighting wasn't there. Uh, Dogen was offered a, a temple by the emperor. I, I, I'd like to offer you a, temp you know, a temple because he heard about this great teacher, Dogen Zenji, who's the founder of Soto Zen and in Japan. And so he refused it. He refused the temple, you know, from uh, the emperor um, because he had seen the effects and the influence of that. So um, I think when it's influenced, just like in any country by the government or any uh, political leaders or merchant, you know, business side of things, it changes the, uh, the religion. So um, the, the Shinto, Shigong, uh, uh, um, and uh, Taoism, all of, the, all of these things were here before, were there before the Buddhism that we're practicing uh, came along and became um, more popular. I don't know if it's still popular. I, did, I have traveled to Asia, but um, I think I'd need to travel more to really see it because I like to see things. I don't only like to read it about it. So I did go to several Asian countries to, to feel Buddhism in the people and from the place it, it came from. So I, I think that, um, you know, I'm just making a point in the book, a very brief one at that, and not a deep one, because I, you know, I think there, is a, there are a number of books that um, can be read to go into that deeper um, historical lineage and to show you how it came about, you know, in the years and the timeline. And everybody would love that. And we'd have a little chart and everything. <laughs> <laughs> but to me, what does that have to do with what we're doing? You know, how we're practicing it. And um, so I just kind of, I think I, I kind of brought together a teeny bit of the academic and a teeny bit of the practice together. And, um, and having met some Buddhist scholars who have, when they finally did practice, were like, oh, well, this is very different than what's on the page. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
and, and that one, and it was beautiful, um, he was a young man who came to practice at San Francisco Zen Center with a number of us um, in the people of color group that was at the San Francisco Zen Center. He didn't particularly come to practice in that group, but he came to sit with us once and we were all practicing in a practice period in Ango. And he came to one of our sessions in tears, just, just tears. And I knew he had been touched. You know, like in church, it was like, oh, the hallelujah, <laughs> the Holy Ghost, his bones had been rattled, you know, and I could see it, you know, I could see he had been shaken. And um, he said, I know nothing. And he had been studying for four or five years, uh, Buddhist studies. He said, I know nothing through his tears. And it was just an affirmation of, uh, of that ancient bone part of the practice, the bone, the root of it. You know, and not what we need to do with it. So we're better at our jobs, better, whatever, better, better, better people. You know, it's, it could happen, you know, but it's not, it's not a tool. It's a path, hmm. not a tool. I, I saw your, um, your interview with Roshi Joan Halifax at the Upaya Center earlier today. And mm -hmm. you said, I'm pa totally paraphrasing, but you talked about, you know, unless there's weeping, uh, someone hasn't truly engaged the practice or the ritual. Can you expand on that a little yeah. bit? Yeah, I believe that in all, all of the ceremonies, I have wept in all ceremonies, African Native Zen, any ceremony that I've been. And just so everyone knows, my, my root practice is Zen. So I don't teach anything. I'm not Lakota and I don't teach anything in the Native traditions. I'm not a teacher in that tradition. I'm not a pipe carrier or a dancer. And so I, I don't teach it and I don't talk about it. Uh, same in the African uh, traditions I have come upon, uh, even though there's been transmissions in those practices, I'm not, uh, I'm not ordained in them. Uh, I'm ordained in them in the way that maybe I was born with it inside me because I was brought to it, but not ordained in the sense of sanctioning that happens in these many traditions. So I want to put that on the table. I think it's important, you know. So um, let's see how should I approach it? Say the question again, just Just, yeah, you, you, you talked about the, the weeping, and, the weeping the, the, and how, you know, unless that's happening, you know, have we really fully engaged the ritual or the practice? Are we really going deeply into ourselves or into the practice? For me, it's a sign. You know, I don't know what the signs are for others. Um, but there is a way of, I, I can feel when I'm open that, um, that something's being touched to me that I can't do myself, that place that you can't do yourself. So if you're weeping and you know how to do that yourself, it might not be. <laughs> It might not be that signal for you, um, but usually I think there is some kind of um, response to the rise of wisdom in one's body. There is a response, and it's, I think mostly it's physical. You might have to discover that on your own, but I think it's everyone has that. I um, maybe it's just a chill. I don't know, but I. I don't know why mine's is so deep and it might have something to do with my, 
make up my structure, but like when I hear a bell and it's a nice bell, it just, I, I just feel levit like I'm levitating and it doesn't matter, you know, where that bell is heard, you know, listening to following the ceremonies of Thich Nhat Hanh's death, every time they rang that bell, I just like, like was there, you know, and, um, I have a very nice bell too in my house, but when someone else rings it and I can receive it, you know, in a way that, um, say one might hear the whispering in your ear of, uh, from some being that you've never met, you know, about life. That's how it feels like it is, it's wordless. It's a wordless experience, but it's, but it's felt and, and you're touched. And, um, if you're coming in and you're in that weeping place, which most of us come in weeping, <laughs> you know, from our suffering, um, that weeping changes. So it's not a weeping of sorrow necessarily, but a, a weeping of, of being touched by that, which is unseen and, and normal and unfelt because we have not been still enough for it to happen or we haven't put ourselves in a place in which it can happen, which is the place of ceremony. And so that's, that's about as much as I could say about it. there are no words for it really. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. Now, one of the things that you talk about is the, the rejection of magic and trance in modern Western practice of Zen Buddhism. And I'm wondering if you can touch on what the, what are the roots of this? This, is it a colonial thing? Is it a, this mechanical sort of industrial outlook? Is it a patriarchal thing? Is it all of those things? What are the roots of that? Um, I touch on it just to say that it happened. So I think, I feel that um, not only, you know, it's not only the Western um, turning away from it, they're also, we're Eastern turning away from this kind of magical you know, uh, looking at Buddhism in a magical shamanic way, you know, um, many people turned away from when, um, we went from Mahayana say, which is one period of teachings, a school of teachings to Vajrayana. Vajrayana felt too, too, had too many trinkets for some people. And you'll hear people who, who talk about Zen with, you know, no, um, no toys, no, you know, um, uh, my teacher was of the no toys, <laughs> uh, uh, school and, um, and my teacher Zenke Blanche Hartman was of the, uh, who has now passed and I honor her at this moment. Yeah. And, um, who transmitted to me joy. She didn't transmit it, transmit knowledge. She transmitted joy of the practice of Zen. And so, you know, her, um, when she had control <laughs> of the assembly, you know, sometimes during Sashin's, there were no bells, no chanting, no nothing, you know, maybe just touching the earth, sitting and touching the earth, getting up and touching the earth. That was it. And it was very powerful to me, you know, very powerful to do that for like a whole day or a whole session where there were no, um, you know, things to tinker with and play with and all that. So there is, so she herself, um, I think 
steered away from this idea of it's more than just this basic sitting and breathing. Just it's just zazen and nothing else. So even when I would talk to her about <laughs> you know magical things, she she'd lean over and listen to see what I was saying, you know, about it. And I think she was curious, but it wasn't her way of seeing Zen. And and so so Easterners, Westerners, everyone, there is just this group. There's a school, there's a um, uh, a feeling that um, going into having all of this is more than what's needed. I think some of it um, is colonialism uh, uh, for Westerners, maybe trying to get Buddhism to fit into uh, an American society, you know, to bring something that um, only, you know, uh, Asians were practicing and had as as their base and not understanding that and you know the dominance of course of Christianity but the dominance of a non-mystical Christianity uh, which some people call a Christian dumb type of you know like <laughs> kingdom Christian dumb dumb d-o-m kind of not Christianity so the mystical parts of it so um, there is in in society, in our society, a turning away of that, a turning away of a divination or divinity or seeing or anything like that as true knowing and intelligence. And so it denies uh, a part of who we are as people, all of us, whether we know ourselves to be that way or not, it denies it and we can walk around denying it. I was very aware of this when my oracle came through me um, from a lucid dream, the Black Angel Oracle came through, and um, I, I felt it myself. I was a little bit embarrassed to speak about it, like, oh, this is that kind of thing that, that you know, this is hokey, you know, so I was embarrassed. I wasn't excited about it in the beginning, and I hid um, from it, And uh, but I knew it had come through, and it came through after chanting for seven years, vigorously chanting so into being uh, with the teachings of the Lotus Sutra and to chanting. And so um, I was changing, you know, my, my cells were changing, things were opening and expanding and I didn't know myself in that expanded way. You know, so, you know, we evolve, are we, are, hopefully we evolve or what isn't evolved can get stagnant. I think that's what's happened in Buddhism, you know, as well. I think we're in some stagnant places. One is because we use it as a tool a lot. We don't use it as a path. It's not taught as a path. And uh, we are in a capitalistic society. So a lot of uh, 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 commodification has gone on. I, I'm part of that commodification, you know, because it is a capitalistic society. We're all a part of it, of the capitalistic society. If you're wearing clothes today, you're part of it. So <laughs> there's no way out of it. Yep. Yep. We're in it. So you're going to eat tonight? Yeah. <laughs> it's happening with you too. So um, uh, no way now. No way now. I think that, that it will, I think, I don't know if I'll be here for it, but I, I believe that there'll be a change. And, and, and um, there'll be, uh, money will make no sense. Again, there'll be that time when money, like for what, you know, 
And um, so you will not need it to survive. You, you will need other things to survive. I think we're getting close to that. People with a lot of money don't have everything they need. So we're getting there, I, I can see it. So anyway, I think that um, this turning away, uh, I had to finally turn toward it because I was feeling um, split, very split. And so I turned toward it, I turned toward what is in the Dharma, what is, what is in these practices that open us to this vastness that's so wide that um, even uh, our own teachers probably can't hold the width, you know, of where we might go or uh, our own selves can't, you know, because it's so wide and it can be very scary and everything is in it, you know, so that's like why the great practices of wandering the, you know, savannah, wandering the jungle are very important in these ancient traditions so that you get used to this feeling of you know, nothing to grasp onto, nothing at all. So we, you, you, you learn that early. We don't, we kind of stay in our houses and then we go and do Buddhism and it does the same thing. Our spiritual path that, that widens us so wide, we don't know what to do with it. And that's where I think there a more transmission is needed. And not just in Buddhism, I think in many of the spiritual paths that have been brought to this country, you know, it gets to the point and there no one really has an idea of how to deal with the expanded being, the the divine being that presents itself in ceremony. We don't know what to do with it. It feels it feels good or it doesn't. We don't know what to do with that. So we turn away or we turn toward it. So I just want to clarify what you just said. Uh, you're saying, you know, th through our practice, we, we come into contact with this expanse of divinity. Uh, and what might be missing or what we might need more of is where do we go from that place? And do you mean by that, how do we, how do we um, live our life from that place? Is that what you're saying? how do we live and how do we talk about it experience it not hide it be it you know it, is it going to be cultivated shunned you know you know like excuse me which mostly it is it's like what are you talking about i mean it, there are jokes made in movies when someone has expanded <laughs> at an expanded consciousness that person is considered not to you know oh no we're not going to talk to him they're shunned <laughs> They're rejected, right? They're, they're right? Weird, okay, so weird, yeah. yeah. So that 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 is the um, you know where we get that from. <laughs> you know, our our books, our media, and that we don't. So because we don't know what to do with it. In ancient ancient times, you know, there were things for it. There were ceremonies. There was a place that expanded being had uh, could be nurtured not for the being itself, but for the whole community, for the whole society to like receive the wisdom that is needed for the times, which is where we are now, right now, you know, where we are now in, in these times, unsettling times of, of, of darkness, that we are, you know, um, opening to this vastness and not having necessarily uh, places 
or people to help cultivate it, you know? Um, so, uh, I mean, I see it on, on, on Facebook too, or something. Sometimes there's comments about, oh no, that person's being a, a Facebook preacher or something, you know, <laughs> there's a turning away from spirituality. There's a turning away from spiritual icons and teachers. That's a very old uh, paradigm. It's not being uh, uplifted at, in, in this time. So is the way I see it. There's a shift. And so no one's um, necessarily, um, I don't say no one, but few are um, able to find, you know, this place of, of uh, cultivation and, and being sequestered. You know, I felt I needed that when that, the Oracle came through me. I didn't have anyone there to tell me what had happened to me. Right. So I just went into Zen. I became silent. <laughs> Going to Zendo. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> you know, and I hadn't been to Zen at all. I don't know how I got there, but I mean, I got there and I just needed to be silent. Yeah, this is a really good point that you're making. I, I you know, uh, I've had that experience myself. And I know having worked in the, in the bookshop in Banyan Books for a number of years, people would come in. And they had had these experiences and there was no guidance. They had no idea what to do with it. Their families were treating them like they were, you know, weirdos and uh, they were lost. Right. Yes, we don't, we, we're, we are lost in, in that, in that, that way. And even the word weird and weirdo is, it, it, it was the word for people who have had a divine expansion, right? It's an old word. So we want to be weird. You should want to be weird. You know, <laughs> that feel good to some folk out there. Oh, no. <laughs> and we're not talking about, um, you know, weird in, in the worldly sense how some people use it for, in that way, but weird in the divine sense, the, the sense of our greater divinity than who we are, um, these beings. Um, this is what, I mean, in, it, it was said over and over, um, um, Thich Nhat Hans didn't want a stupa, right? He kept saying he didn't want, and they had already gone out and made one. So it was too late. And so he, he said, just make sure you write on there. Uh, if you make this stupa that it says, I am not in here. And then if they don't understand, write that I'm not out there either. <laughs> and so that's that's that divine to me expansion now how do you how, what excuse me <laughs> how how are we to to um understand that we can't understand that with our minds we can only understand that with further ritual and ceremony and people who understand how to to lead and guide so a teacher in the dharma is not a a, a teacher because they're profound, they're guides. They should know how to help people guide and, and recognize when when the bell touches someone deeply and to recognize it and bow to it, you know, and that it's, you know, touched the earth, Ashe, yes, been touched, you know, so I think that it's, that's what 
anybody who you're leading in the ceremony, not because you're a leader, but because you have, I, I, for myself, I've experienced it, something that I can see and feel that I know others can see and feel as well. You know, I'm not special in that way. And, and then we are, some of us are special, you know, because it happens more often because we're, we're much wider. You know, we just keep expanding, expanding, expanding. The more ceremonies we do, not the more books we read. <laughs> <laughs> Although you can read my book. <laughs> yeah, it's a great book. It's a great yeah. book. Okay, uh, we've got some we've got some nice questions from the audience here. If you're ready for that, uh -huh. okay. Um, there's one from Patricia. Patricia says, "There are moments when I sit in meditation that I feel a presence that isn't me." Can you share your perspective on this phenomenon? Um, when they're in meditation, they said, "Yeah." yeah. So um, I can't really explain someone else's experience without knowing them and being with them. And, but I, I can invite you to see that it's, it's not outside of you. It's not something coming on into, you know, outside. It's just still you. It, it's just an expand itself, you know, in that way. And for me, that's the way I felt, I think. Um, if you don't know yourself to be that way, it can seem like something from the outside. Um, and uh, it's always hard for me to talk about these things because I think I've, you know, I've had these experiences long before Buddhism, you know, when I was young, a young child in my own bedroom and my sisters and I shared a room. And I remember that room very well because of the experiences that I had. And, um, and one of those experiences, I would be laying down, but I, in my bed and my older sister would be over to my left and my younger sister would be in her crib kind of at the foot of my bed. So we were all at the same bedroom. And, um, I remember my mother coming in several times and I would just like, why am I up there on the ceiling <laughs> while I'm in the bed? And it, it, it just would freak me out in the beginning. And then after a while, I just started getting used to it. Is that that was something that was a part of me. I never said anything about it. I just knew it was happening. And it wasn't outside of me. It was just an expansion of myself. So I already had, you know, a notion that we were, like they say, beyond this body. But yet this body. So I'm still in the bed, but I'm not in the bed. You know, so I think to just look into it and discover and don't make anything of it. I was taught that in Zen too. Don't, don't make anything. I think I, I speak to that in the book, not to get fascinated necessarily with what you see and feel like, oh my gosh, you know, and that's another thing we do with this awakening and this vastness is we start making it something, you know, um, sometimes I think maybe it wasn't a good idea to make the Oracle like concrete book and cards. Like maybe what would have happened if I just let it grow into something else? And I have let it grow. And that's why I'm here today talking because this is really connected to what has grown inside of me from that dream, you know, that Dharma dream, just like the Buddha. He had Dharma dreams. <laughs> so, you know, um, just keep looking at it. <laughs> 
the, in the discovery mode. Don't make anything of it. Just be with it. Thank you. Thanks for your question, Patricia. There's one from Joanne who says, would you speak to end of life Zen ceremony for an end of life companion or a doula or a hospice caregiver? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's just a big, big area. There are many, many people who are trained in this area. What I like about Zen, I just, I have to just love on Thich Nhat Hanh's community for sharing with the world what it looks like. And I would tell people, I would say, have you been watching Thich Nhat Hanh's ceremonies, you know, his death ceremonies? And um, people saying, yes, I said, that's Zen. That's Zen. That, that's what I wrote about. So you don't, if you watch the ceremony, maybe you don't have to read the book. Just watch <laughs> the ceremonies, you know, and because that's what it is. And you can't explain what's happening. But um, one friend called and said, oh, my God, he's just, he's just laying out there. You know, that in the beginning, he was just laying on the bed out there. He's just laying out there. And I said, that's what we do. We, we look, at, look upon a body, uh, you know, that, that uh, the spirit has left that body. We look at the body so we can understand impermanence, you know, and understand, you know, like sit with the relationship of having known a being that's not a being, that a person that's not a person. That's no longer a person in that sense, but it's now something else. And, but we still feel that person. We still feel the person. And so you get a chance to, to sit with that and to look into it and um, for days. And many traditions have this. I mean, um, Christian, Christians, when in my church, we had wakes, you know, there were wakes. There were those times when the family came together so they could tell stories, cry, eat and sleep with the body. So this is not just a, a Buddhist situation. And I think that uh, our society, we don't have our death rituals. We don't know what to do. We can't do, we can't, we die, there will be, will there be a 10 day ceremony? There should be, because so that the, there'll be this long, we got to mourn for days, for days, everybody kind of stopped and we're watching these ceremonies, even if it was an hour or two. We did, oh, Thich Nhat Hanh died, here's the hour funeral, uh, hour and a half funeral on CBN, CNN, and then, <laughs> You know, that was it. And all the dignitaries get up and talk and that's it. That it was, it was 10 days, eight, whatever, eight, nine, 10 days. That's how I love that because it should happen for everyone. Not just Thich Nhat Hanh, but for everyone. And it does happen for all the, all the Zen um, priests and um, the monks and nuns. Uh, it does happen for each one, not just Thich Nhat Hanh. All those ceremonies. You know, maybe not as large, but it, it does. There's at least four ceremonies in, in our lineage uh, when a priest dies. Not everybody gets th that ceremony because it depends on your relationship with the monastery. So, but I, I do, I really love that long drawn out uh, way of, uh, of being with uh, the, the letting go of the body and um, in the way that we spend a lot of time when someone comes into a body. Um, you know, everyone comes to see the baby. And we spend a lot of time, we keep coming to see the baby. 
over and over and over the baby how we call about the baby you know and how and the people who are around the baby we want to talk to the people around the baby you know we're just same way when someone leaves the body is to be spend that time so i think the, the most important element is spending that time that grief that mourning that stopping there's so much death and we need to stop in this country and all over the world, maybe together, just stop for a day and drop the flags. Just stop for all the COVID deaths, COVID-19 pandemic deaths, for all the deaths of uh, uh, anti-hatred, anti-blackness, anti-everything, all of the, the, the dying, the unnecessary dying. And to mourn and to grieve and there's going to be a lot of death in the next 10 to 20 years. One is because baby boomers are leaving or they were a big group. That's me too. <laughs> a big group. We're leaving. And so, you know, it, it's going to be like that on Facebook. So, so die. So, so die. So, so die. So they said Facebook is going to go away in about five, 10 years because everybody be dead on it. <laughs> baby boomers. <laughs> so, so it's going to be phenomenal. What do we do with that space and what ceremonies are in place for a, a, a society, a world, when there's when millions and millions leave? And then there and then there's some who come in, right? There's another big boom in, in a generation. I think there's an I'm not sure. I think it's the millennials are also as big as the boomers. I'm not sure. But you know, we if we're coming back to the earth in the way we are in terms of climate change, that we, we need to come back to the earth as well as ourselves as earth and how we take care of the earth when it's in demise and when it's in the rise. Demise and rise, how are we taking care of this earth? Because that's how we're gonna take care of earth. It's all together, it's all one thing. Thank you. I think we have time for one more question. Um, and I, it seems it's a, it's a longer question, but I think it's, it's a nice, uh, it brings things full circle. Um, it's from, from Chris and Chris says, Uju Zenju. I am an indigenous person residing south of the medicine line where our colonial government has never made much effort to acknowledge the relationship between what they've done to our people and what it means to those of us who are alive due to the sacrifices of our ancestors. I tend to find land acknowledgments such as those given this evening by both yourself and Ross, at least irritating and often offensive. They're particularly uncomfortable in situations where I am the only indigenous person in the room or one of few. Yet never have I heard them described as a practice inviting in of our ancestors to whatever experience we are about to share. And now my head is teetering on the brink of explosion. What a beautiful way to think of them. In most cases, I don't believe the people delivering the acknowledgement understand the ancestral invitational nature of what they are doing. But is it enough that I do? I, I, it's, it is enough that you do, but it's also that we do. 
And I acknowledge it from my many um, places of ceremony for 20 years. I acknowledge it from the songs I sing and that I have sung and drummed. And for the dancers I have supported and for the sacrifices I have made, flesh sacrifices in the name and prayer of natives in this country. So I don't speak of it as a uh, very, I don't take it as, oh, I'm just saying that, this, look what I knew, I looked it up on Google. I am I'm speaking from an experience personally, and you don't know me, so you don't know that I am speaking from that and that I have wept around the round drum and I mean, wailed around the round drum um, for what has happened. Um, I too um, understand that uh, there, there needs to be, and I wish I had the article here with me, but more of not just acknowledgement, and I'm wondering what, what you would like to see us do, but more than acknowledgement, but also to um, take part in the lives of, of people in some way. I don't mean, you know, running down to Pueblos and reservations to do that. That's not what I'm asking people to run down and do because that tends to be a big problem as well. But to to really come to an understanding of what what has happened. And I feel in my blood, I do understand that. I'm not coming from a place of not having experienced it um, and not being a part of uh, Native communities because I am. I am a part and I have been a part for 20 years. So I speak from that place. I'm new to New Mexico, so I don't know, um, you know, and I, I know I came here because I do uh, have participated in ceremony here. And, um, but I, I don't, I get irritated too. I, I have to say I'm very irritated by it. I join in because I want to, um, people to see the interconnection, not just to see the Native American, because if we're just focused out, then there's no interconnection, you know? Um, so there is an interconnection, not with just the Native American, but the land itself, you know, and what has happened on the land. And, and when I say it, and I have been really afraid to say it sometimes, because it feels like a direct away from what we what the acknowledgement is, is that there's a lot of blood on this land and some of that is African blood as well. And, um, and that African blood um, is not being acknowledged um, at all in this process too. So, um, and, and Africans were here before slavery as well so what happened to them and um and what is our relationship going to be is it going to be a relationship of calling out or helping to support a better way a better way of acknowledging what has happened it's easy to call out that's just as easy as me acknowledging that's easy you i acknowledge you call out good night nothing's done in that nothing is done in that open your heart to something bigger and help with this movement of interrelationship with all of us each other 
I think it's important to mention, not to say don't do it. Don't, you can't censor anyone. There's no censorship. But there is, I think, a, a way in which um, that it, it, I do acknowledge it's, you know, superficiality, but I don't feel that for myself, personally. This is not coming from that place. Um, and um, I think if I had never been in ceremony, I wouldn't say anything. So I'm saying it from uh, so many years of ceremony. And, uh, and, I, and I, I did those ceremonies right alongside my Zen practice. So did I chant at the, on land? No, that's not, I didn't mix them. I don't mix them. I see them very as traditions of their own. And I also see the, the crossroad. I do stand at the crossroad, which way are you going? I'll probably go that way too. Which way are you going? Because I've been down those paths. Oh, you're going to that temple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, thank you for bringing that forward. It's not the first time this has happened. It's happening more and more on the uh, Zoom meetings. I think it wouldn't happen at all if we didn't have Zoom. So there's also that dynamic. And, um, and yeah. That's all I can say about it. Thank you so much. And thanks, Chris, for, for bringing that up. We've been speaking with Zenju Earthland Manuel about her latest book, The Shamanic Bones of Zen, Revealing the Ancestral Spirit and Mystical Heart of a Sacred Tradition. Her website is Zenju, Z-E-N-J-U, or if you're in the U.S., Z-E-N-J-U dot O-R-G. And, uh, Thanks to everyone who's who's here live. The, the field that's created with everyone being here live is such a beautiful thing. Of course, you can see the recordings of the podcast on our YouTube channel. Look for Banyan Books. Follow us and subscribe. Turn on notifications. You can also find us on any of the audio podcasting platforms of your choice. Huge thank you to our podcast producer and events curator, Jacob Steele, for everything that he does. And uh, again, Zenju, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today and wishing you all the best in your work. Thank you. Thank you for, again, for inviting me. It was a good conversation. I can see we can go on for days. And I just invite everyone to, to read the book and to continue asking questions based on having read the book and understanding where I'm coming from, not, not deciding where I'm coming from by the title of the book. This is the this is the new way now. People just re read the title and they've read the book. So I'm <laughs> encouraging to go a little further and further than chapter one, and to really discover uh, the experience that I'm sharing there, and not to make assumptions. You know, try to uh, see and then try to see in your own life. You know, uh, you know the experiences of uh, of of uh, the bones of the roots of all spiritual practices. My last word. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. 
Our podcast producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani. And I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com.